Someone asked me this morning who was going to send a shear or a lecture. The answer is neither. I simply want to share with you some thoughts upon our present discontents, give expression to give vent some of the problems, some of the concerns which trouble us, or at the very least should trouble us. The issues with which I want to deal, up to a certain point, of course relate with the substantive decisions that Medinat Yisrael, Klal Yisrael, may have to make in the fairly near future. But to a great extent, what I want to discuss is a plea, not so much a particular conclusion, as at the very least, for a process, for a mode of dealing with the issues. To plead for mindset and perspective, no less than for a specific definitive program. We are confronted, presumably, with the need for making certain decisions, certain choices. The capacity for choice is, of course, a prime element in human life. And one which, from a moral perspective, certainly from a Torah perspective, is viewed as one of the great, one of the cardinal elements in human life, ideally speaking. In one sense, what I suppose might be regarded as even the metaphysical plane, the capacity for choice is regarded as one of the qualities, one of the characteristics which defines human existence, certainly moral existence. Picadella Birandal's famous oration concerning the dignity of man, that which he saw setting man off from the rest of the creation was precisely quality of indeterminacy, if you will, an indeterminacy which is then to be molded and shaped by choice, by decision, by free will. The Maral, taking the position against the Rambam, the Rambam saw the angels as being the ultimately superior beings, nobler, grander than man, the Ma'al followed the Chachmei Kabbalah says on the contrary that man stands above the angels. He stands above primarily from his point of view because of the capacity for choice, because, if you will, of the necessity for choice. Very term intelligence equivalent, if you will, of Das, and Das for the Rambam is very much the epitome of Tzalom Alakim. Etymologically, intelligence relates to the Latin term for choice, for selection. So to one plane, in terms of defining the quality of human life and human existence, capacity for choice, it's regarded as a cardinal element. Of 
course, in the second plane, practically speaking, we all desire to act with optimal freedom, to be able to have all options available, and then to select between those, rather than having our options narrowed down, so that we are then constrained to some extent by the force of circumstance, to choose between the narrow or bad, and perhaps amongst options, none of which is holy to our liking. Now this desire for choice as broad as possible, of course, within moral and religious bounds, it's not only a question of a pragmatic, psychological preference. It is substantive and was recognized by Chazal as such. Even taking an event such as Matan which one's reading of the Psukim certainly seems to have been entered into freely, voluntarily, cry of Nasser and Ishma, whatever the Ben Shem said, that we will do, heat, even with regard to that, Moses says in Shabbos, that inasmuch as in a certain sense there was no freedom to choose otherwise, Zalda described that the Ben Shloilam Kofreim Harkigigis took the mountain Halsinai superimposed it upon Knesset Yisrael as a kind of giant vat with the implicit threat either you accept Torah that should be your burial place which in effect neutralized, negated the ability to choose as I'll say even though it's clear they chose voluntarily they wanted it but the very fact that they could not have wanted otherwise given the fact that some of the decisions we made under the gun that is very that is already a certain basis for subsequently challenging the legitimacy of the decision and the extent to which it may be viewed as binding. So, both at an ideal plane and a practical plane, certainly capacity for choice is much cherished and properly highly valued. And yet, it exacts a toll. To be able to choose is in moral terms to be invested with responsibility and the greater the latitude of choice the larger the number of areas and the more serious those are with regard to which choice can be exercised the greater the degree of responsibility but that responsibility is itself multiple first of all if you can choose then that imposes upon you a certain demand to invest time, effort, energy, thought in order to see to it that you make the best choice. And again, the more serious the matter, the greater the degree of responsibility. Secondly, quite apart from the demand, the effort that is required of us, and justly required of us, there is, of course, the psychological, if you will, moral burden, the knowledge that one can't pass the buck, 
and of one in his own eyes, in the eyes of others, and perhaps in the eyes of history, will be held liable for whatever course of events ensues from the choice that one has made. In many respects, this makes the process not only demanding, but at times agonizing. Because one has to live prospectively with whatever choices one has made and with whatever results flow from those choices. And to the extent that one is mindful of that, of course the process itself then becomes fraught, seemingly with pain, certainly with difficulty. That difficulty, psychological, moral, beyond the question of simply making the effort, the effort one can live with, that difficulty is of course greatly compounded when none of the options is ideal. When perhaps each of them is even painful. Then the process becomes truly not just burdensome, not simply difficult, but agonizing. And this again, both prospectively, or one is engaged in the process of striving for some kind of resolution, and retrospectively, one has to reflect in the aftermath of the decision, not only upon the course taken, but also upon the road not taken. The reflection upon capacity for choice, something wonderful in one sense, and yet exacting, perhaps even frightening in another sense. So I think very much with us today in our Israel, and should be, I think, very much with you here in the diaspora. For many decades, in one respect, the Arabs made life easy for us. Of course, in many respects, they made life very, very difficult. They attacked us physically, whether for Fedayin raids of one kind or actual wars of another kind. They attacked us economically through boycotts, primary, secondary, tertiary. They attacked us psychologically. But one thing they didn't impose upon us. They did not impose upon us the need make decisions because they did not provide us with the opportunity to make decisions. As long as it was totally passages on the other side, as long as there was nothing but Yamanah Palestinai calling for wiping out the state of Israel, as long as the voices called solely for throwing all of us out into the sea, well, does one have to pause for five minutes to decide whether he wants to be thrown to the sea? Does not want to be thrown to the sea? <coughs> so we're freed from that moral and psychological and halakhic burden. And then we could pour all of our energies to building ourselves, into sustaining our capacity for maintaining our resistance. And as far as the possibility that we somehow have to decide to one option and another, 
So there were some people, of course, who discussed it all along. But in the nature of Hichlis and the was not something on the table. And after all, these Arabs, you can't trust them, they'll never change. So uh, one didn't really need to bother oneself too much about deciding on one scenario as opposed to another scenario, as long as it seemed clearly and irrevocably, only one direction was practical. That conceivable, all this of course is part of the debate, that conceivably has changed. At least Klapi Chutz, in terms of what's been presented and projected by people who like to think of themselves, although that again is part of the problem, like to think of themselves as leaders of the Palestinian cause. And certainly, in terms of what is heard from neighboring Arab states, Syria for the moment possibly accepted, all of a sudden there are choices. And there are people who say, well, we're going to cut a deal. And we have to ask ourselves, do we want the deal? That, of course, breaks down to a number of questions. A, do we think that there's someone really to talk to? Is it all a mirage? Or some kind of devilish trick? And secondly, even assuming that we're dealing with people who are trustworthy themselves, and who are able to control their population, do we want the deal? And we then are confronted with the issue Shalom to Murat Shtachim, Shtachim to Murat Shalom, peaceful land, the land for peace. Do we want to really entertain, to enter into territorial compromise? For some people, of course, this is not an issue at all. For them, nothing has changed fundamentally. And the relative ease of not having to make decisions, that situation continues to obtain. Perhaps, for halachic reasons. If one assumes, for instance, that the return of any part of Eretz Yisrael comes under Yahweh Valyav, one should choose death rather than do something so horrendous. There is such a category, of course, in Allahi. The question is, what comes under that? But if one assumes that some do, the Yorid then you have, in some sense, practical, political leeway. It's not like the Aynis or Magalus Asadogal of actual physical violence, but you don't have spiritual, religious, halachic leeway. So for them, of course, there's not much of a problem. Likewise, although from a totally different perspective, for those who think that the peace process, as it's called, is no peace process at all, it's all a misnomer, and that from a purely security point of view, this is a recipe for disaster. And its consequences can only be regarded as calamitous, nothing short of catastrophic, that we simply, if we enter this process of deferring present troubles, 
for future troubles of far greater magnitude, that we're averting an immediate war only to invite a future war under circumstances far less favorable, that the risks involved, again, from a purely defense point of view, are simply unbearable. If that is one's geopolitical judgment, once having arrived at that judgment, one is basically where we've been for the last 30 or 40 years, a position where with a peer prima facie that you have choice, but really in Brera, you really have no choice. So, for these two groups, there really is not much to agonize over. It's committed halachic Jews. You don't argue with halacha, you implement it. And, as a responsible citizen, do not enter upon a course which you regard as devastating. As far as security implications are concerned, you do your best to fight it, to avoid it, to thin it. But there are, of course, among us those who do not share either of these perceptions. Who hold on purely halachic grounds that while certainly the return of parts of Yisrael is painful, but in certain circumstances is permissible, and if permissible, perhaps even desirable, and that the category of Yohannik Val ought not apply to these circumstances. The argument that is advanced by those who do speak in terms of Yohannik Val uh, rests essentially on one of two assumptions. One, that one is dealing with issues of holding on to Yisrael, fighting for it, but by definition, the question of the loss of life is not to the point, because uh, by definition, warfare, the mitzvah of Milchome, the mitzvah of Kibushalitz, the mitzvah of acquiring if necessary to conquer Snellitz Israel, that has already factored in the possibility of a loss of life. But the Sefer Achinuch indeed says that Mitzvah Milchame applies only when there is no danger of losing the loss of life. But Mitzvah says quite properly, whoever is such a war, she doesn't have such dangers. So the argument is that here you're dealing with a Mitzvah which by definition supersedes the factor of the loss of life. That is one argument. The other is, leaving aside the specific character of the Mitzvah of Muhammad, but there's another more general consideration which neutralizes the factor of the Pikuach Nefesh. The Gemara says that there are certain factors which uh, overcome Pikuach Nefesh, with and essentially there are three such categories. One, if you have Averis, whose gravity is of such magnitude 
that uh, doesn't apply to them. Murder, idolatry, sexual abuses. This is one category. Second category is if the Aveda is performed publicly, where the element of Kiddush Hashem comes in, the Pharisee of Yasorim Yisrael, there too Yisrael Valyav, Rimud got to other Averis, that is, if a person is threatened, either do this Avera or you lose your life, then that is a challenge to Kiddush Hashem, and the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, a challenge to his religious identity, and then Yom Valyav with the Pharisee. And there's the third category of Shas Hashman. There's a time at which there's a general onslaught part of those who want to undermine the world of Tevah Mitzvah Zavedah Sashem upon a given halachit, then its violation within that context because of the ambience that becomes Nishu Yahweh even if the particular Maisa is not the Pharisee of Sashma. Now the mother says that if the Aver is Bepharesye, but not a Shas Hashmad, then Yahweh Yahweh only becomes a factor if the motivation of the person who threatens you with death, unless you do the Aver, is Lahavir al Das. He specifically wants you to be over the Aver and not to become the Mitzvah. Then you say Yahweh Yahweh. But if he's threatening you with this out of his own interest, he wants to get money from you or whatever it is, then there is no halach of Yahweh Val Yahweh because the element of Kiddush Hashem then does not exist. With regard to the three Aveiras, the triad, which is so serious and great, there, most of the assume that there's no law of Yahweh Yahweh, that there's no Yahweh Yahweh, even if Slanoas Atzman, because they say that here it's not the element of Kiddush Hashem which dictates Yahweh Yahweh, but the, the gravity of the Avera. The gravity of the Avera does not change whether it's Slanoas Atzman or Avera al Das. The person is asked to murder someone else, the murder is just as much murder, the person is just as dead. Whether the person who is threatening you, that unless you kill that person, he'll kill you, is motivated by desire to see to it that you should be able to or whether it's a mafiosi who wants to rub out a particular fellow and threatens you, to, unless you do it, he'll kill you. According to most of With regard to the third category of Shas Hashemad, here is a difference of opinion between the Ramban and the Raivit, to whether the Anasatsu becomes a factor or not. And uh, Greibet says that with regard to these Averis, Shashmad, every Avera becomes so serious that Yorod Valyavar and even Anasatsu, even if the intention of the person who's threatening and forcing and coercing you is to derive his own benefit. And the Ramban disagrees. Ramban says, no, that is only with regard to the Gimel Averis, but Shas Hashmad is like the Pharisee, only for Avradas and Yorval Yavr, otherwise not. 
And there are some who have contended that the issue of returning parts of us Israel, this is a Shasa Shmad, there's a general onslaught here with regard to this halachic factor. And therefore, if one were to accept the judgment of the Raiva, that the Kwach Nefesh would not enter, he would say, Yohamed Balyav. These are the arguments for the halachic position. I think it's a position which, to say the least, is questionable. It's questionable on two grounds. First of all, is one, at the very least, it's granted, well, to deal with both issues. First, we got the question of, uh, of Minchomer, assuming that indeed the element of the Kwach Nefesh as such is not factored in, it is already been factored in, but that doesn't mean that one can wantonly disregard the loss of life. Things that as a category doesn't obviate the mitchiv. And I'll come to that more fully later on. As far as the question of Yom Valyava, so at the very least, you have here Machleks with the Ramban and the Raibit. You got the Dean of the Fashist, you want to assume that you must accept the Raibit as opposed to the Ramban. Secondly, of course, there's a serious question as to whether indeed one can define the circumstances being those of Shas Hashmat. Shas Hashmat means that overall there is an attempt to get Jews to violate this mitzvah, Kwa mitzvah. But I think it's fairly clear that what the Arabs have in mind is not our commitment to Shulchan <laughs> They want to get back all of Eretz Yisrael because they know that they know that the speaks about the Ramban and the Ramban says that the Mitzvah is Eretz Yisrael and whoever does is not Miyashiv Eretz Yisrael is over on this Ramban and therefore they want to be certain we should be over on And there are motivations. Which not only make that an Anas Atzman situation but beyond that Obviate, in effect, it's being a situation of Shasa Shmad altogether. So that, that contention, I think, is far from being decisive, and quite the contrary, I think it is not a correct view. And that has been, over the last generation, the prevalent view, reading Puskin, some who were in favor of returning, not in favor of returning, but who by and large, did not invoke the category of Yavr as far as the possible returning is concerned. Now, as far as the second group is concerned, those who think that there are risks involved and invoke the security factor, that of course needs to be weighed with ultimate gravity ultimate gravity <coughs> to be weighed from every side with great care and seriousness and with a sense of historical responsibility but that needs to be done with one factor kept in mind throughout times of listening to people who speak of the risks involved in returning this or returning that of what kind of another whether it's the question of the narrowness 
of Eretz Yisrael to be turned to some parts of the Shomron, or Chachas may be turned to attacks upon the Galil, the Golan is to be turned. One always gets a sense, not always, but frequently gets a sense, that somehow these people see all the risks on one side. They take the present situation as a given, it's the status quo, and what we have at present, so we can live with. There has been, of course, a certain level of terror, and each case is a frightening tragedy in its own right. But it's something we've become accustomed to, where people are accustomed to traffic accidents, and the number of people, victims of terror, runs, 10th, 5th, are victims of automobile fatalities. And uh, the way the argument is presented is that somehow the way things are present, these are fine. Now, you, those who are in favor of some kind of compromise, you are destabilizing the situation and creating new risks where no risks have existed at present, at least not in a broad national scale. This, of course, is a specious way of viewing the situation. Of course there are risks of territorial compromise, but the risks are only in that direction. And in continuing passively, the situation is obtained until the present, there there are no risks. There we have a shtar from the Rebbeinah that the status quo can and shall continue indefinitely, indeterminately. Of course not. We are dealing with a dynamic situation, one within which many events, some anticipated and others, such as the rise of Islamic fundamentalism, wholly unanticipated by most, seriously threaten the viability of the existence of the Medina as a whole, no less than some modes of territorial compromise. So if we are to invoke the security factor, and certainly needs to be invoked, Chastashon should not be invoked. And if indeed emphasis is placed upon possible risks in engaging in territorial compromise, and that needs to be emphasized, but let that be weighed against other risks equally on the other side of doing nothing, of allowing the situation to continue to fester, and possibly deferring the day of decision to some later phase, when perhaps those to whom we'll have to talk, the kind of alternatives that will present themselves, may be far less to our liking than the present. Etc., etc. Kind of cross between Disneyland and Hong Kong, which, <laughs> which awaits us on the horizon, if only we will take across this Rubicon and this peace process. This on the one hand, on the other hand, not the accompanying sense of anguish. And if you decide you must give up heaven, maybe give it. From your point of view. But feel the pain, feel the anguish. And this is not certainly not expressed by many people in the government who are in the forefront of the process. And from a spiritual, from a religious point of view, that should pain us. For my part, if all that's involved is this trade and commerce, the increase in tourism, I wouldn't give up one square kilometer.
if the issue is one of security, saving lives, then quite conceivably, we should agree to a mode of compromise, but accompany that by the sense of anguish. If I knew that in order to save the life of an infant, I would have to burn a Sefer Torah, I would burn it. Al-Pedina would be mechoiv to burn I wouldn't tear kriya. I wouldn't be paid. But this is the element of quantification. We ask ourselves, Shalom to Murad Shtachim, land versus peace, Bikoach Nefesh versus Shtachim. The quantitative element becomes of overriding significance. Of course, from a certain point of view, that oughtn't to be so at all. And we can very easily, speaking with moral fervor, adopt either extreme. On the one hand, position that the importance of Eretz Israel is such that the national, the metaphysical, the historical, the meta-historical factors, all of these weigh, outweigh the question of personal sacrifice. And we can engage in a great deal of halachic and moral flag-waving and say, look, heroism, self-sacrifice, etc., and let the numbers be irrelevant, give overriding concern to the public, the communal, as I said, the historical interest. And that, of course, can work up a great deal of moral enthusiasm and talach enthusiasm. But on the other hand, of course, the position that how can you quantify human life? Nefesh achas Yisrael is like a single soul, the equivalent of the whole world. And therefore take the position that pikuach nefesh of one individual of many is to be equated and therefore say that the whole enterprise simply is not worth even a single soul. Celebrate the story where the God of was once traveling on a train. He heard a number of Jews talking about their present discontents. And uh, one of them sighed, no, all these sadness, well, all these persecutions and whatnot. At least the Mashiach were coming. The Prime went over to them and he said, You know, the Mishnah Seder gives many simonim of many signs as to how the world is going to look in messianic times or pre messianic times. But the shedding of Jewish blood is not among them. He said, Just as the Kuach Nefesh sets aside Kola all other Alochis, the few exceptions I mentioned before, it sets aside also the Yasa Mashiach. And if Mashiach could only come to price for the shedding of Jewish blood, let him wait. And it's easy, and morally speaking, to adopt either extreme position. But humanly speaking, historically speaking, this either extreme really the way we think, the way we feel, the way we ought to think, the way we ought to feel. There's a celebrated passage in the Brothers Karamazov in which Alyosha is asked, supposing that the following deal were to be cut with you, that the whole world would enjoy the, the bliss of 
total security, fecundity, plenty, everything, the very, very best. But on the condition that a single infant innocently be tormented as the price for this worldwide bliss. Would you buy? His answer, Dostoevsky's answer, of course, is no. I presume that should be our answer as well, if that's the way that it's presented. But of course, if we're not dealing with a single designated innocent victim, but if we're dealing at the level of social, national, historical policy, then we see things, and inevitably see things, somewhat different. Any commander who's in battle quantifies human life. It's terrible. But nevertheless, it makes a cheshmer is a certain initiative likely to lead to X sacrifices, or two X sacrifices, or five X sacrifices. <coughs> and knowingly calculates, again, gross and terrible as the term is, calculates whether the initiative is worthwhile depending on the number of casualties that are projected. And if we're dealing with the issues of the national plane, likewise, crass and cruel as it may sound, there probably is little choice. And while clearly one cannot my point of view, except the notion that regardless of what the numbers may be, that assuming, which itself is questionable, but assuming that if the readiness and sacrifice were unlimited, that we could indeed hold on to everything, the notion that that should be accepted, I think is absolutely impossible. On the other hand, if indeed uh, one were to push Rab view to the very end, there would be no Medinat Israel altogether, neither in the past nor present, and that too cannot be a fact. So we find ourselves on the one hand concerned, of course, with each single life, and yet aware that beyond a certain point, some readiness and national plan for sacrifice is there, but only up to a certain point.